You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Anish. And I'm Sam. And we're your hosts. This series aims to unpack the complexities of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. We invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. Welcome to another episode of Green Mountain Medicine. 62% of eligible people in the United States and 80.7% of eligible people in Vermont have had at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. This episode is from a late May conversation with Dr. Tim Leahy, an infectious disease physician, director of clinical ethics, and a professor at the Larner College of Medicine. Join us as we discuss vaccine scale-up and both issues of hesitancy and access in the United States today. Yeah, so it's been, you know, roughly six months since the first vaccine was approved in this country. And kind of now for the first time, supply is starting to outpace demand in some parts. Is this, you know, consistent with what you thought would happen, you know, back in December when these vaccines were approved? Absolutely. You know, I think we know this from not only vaccines, but basically any innovation that there are always early adopters and the people who are just, you know, sign me up. I don't care what it is. Don't give me the details. I just want that new thing. And then there are going to be the late adopters and everybody in between. And particularly in the United States, a special case in the Western world, there is this issue of sort of anti-science sentiment and, and one manifestation of that is vaccine hesitancy. And so, you know, we sort of knew that was coming. And the hope is that the miraculous effects of getting the vaccine to the early adopters is part of the act of persuasion to getting everybody else to say, huh, that's pretty safe and that's pretty protective and I'd like to be safe and protected, so huh, I'll do it. Have you had any success so far in convincing people who were kind of anti-COVID vaccine or just a little more hesitant to actually go and get it? I think that it's most important with any controversy like that to focus not on the loud fringe, but on the people in the middle who have questions, have doubts, are swayed by different points that are a little confused. Because I think those are the people whose minds are not already made up. They probably aren't speaking most loudly in the room, so it's easy to forget that they exist. But yes, I've had patients who came in and they were nervous about COVID and wanted to be safe, but had heard some piece of misinformation from a family member or read it on the internet. And talking to them about the facts and how grateful I was to protect my family from COVID and to see my patients not die helped sway lots of them. And and so that's an awesome feeling. I'm absolutely sure that there are people, not only in my clinic, but in my family, who have some entrenched ideas. And for them, I think it's not super worthwhile confronting that directly. And what do you think about incentivizing people to get the vaccine versus mandating the vaccine and kind of long-term benefits or, you know, cons to each of those? I think that vaccine mandates should be the concept that dare not speak its name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I really think that the, the, the upsides of a vaccine mandate are unclear. You know, we may not need to do it if we get enough people vaccinated and the incidence rates drop which they have in some places like Israel where vaccine uptake has been great, Mm -hmm. it may be unnecessary to infringe on people's autonomy or take the risks of the backlash of a vaccine mandate. So for me, I walk into it with my default assumption being that we don't need to do that, and so why stir up the fire? 
But, you know, you can imagine circumstances in which it becomes necessary. You know, let's say the vaccine efficacy drops in response to variants and uptake isn't as good as we're hoping, and it ends up that in order to protect the vulnerable people in our population, we have to do that to get the rates above a threshold. Okay, then I think it's worth thinking about, but I think it should be uh, the last option. Yeah, I like what you were saying about having success kind of convincing patients in these kind of one-on-one conversations. We've been talking a lot about who people listen to, and it's usually people like their doctor, not someone necessarily like Dr. Fauci, but they're the doctor that they have a relationship with or a friend who has good facts or something like that. So it's nice to it's it's nice to hear that that actually works. I think among our age group of kind of like 18 to 30, there's a lot of young people saying like, I'm going to be fine if I get COVID, so why would I need to get vaccinated? And we've been kind of hearing about the, the kind of the only argument that seems to really convince people who feel safe from it is saying like, you'll be fine, but your friend's grandma might not be. Like someone who you live with down the street might not be. And that seems to, that like empathetic approach seems to actually convince people. And I think in this world right now, I think people forget that, you know, people's hearts are bigger than it seems in it works yeah. pretty well to have those conversations. That is such a key point. You know, the in in Burlington, uh, I think a great example of that is that um, college and graduate school age people took a lot of flack for congregating outside on a sunny Saturday to enjoy the beach. And people characterize this as uh, a sign of the selfishness of the younger generation much as it made me a little bit nervous to see big crowds congregating together in a, in a um, pandemic, that did not lead to spread of the virus as far as we know. And what we have seen is avid interest in the vaccine among younger people uh, motivated more frequently in them by altruism than it is by older people in whom it's motivated by desire to protect themselves. And, you know, I figure if we can layer on top of that, the self-interest of wanting not to develop long COVID, which happens in young people. I figure that's a winning combination. And it's not going to get everybody, but we don't need to convince everybody. How do you think, you know, looking back when UVM said they were going to open in person in the fall, everyone, I think, was a little bit hesitant to have several thousand 18-year-olds back in Burlington. I know that people I talked to down at, like, City Market or Trader Joe's were not super enthused that everything was going back to, like, semi-in-person learning for them. How do you think it went on the whole? You know, at the time that those decisions were being made, we didn't have this one really critical piece of information that we now have, and which really, for me, recolors the whole story. And that critical piece of information uh, is that we can provide clinical care in hospitals safely with masks on, even when people with COVID are Mm in-house. And uh, that includes providing health care to people whose COVID status we didn't know yet, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that if all the doctors and nurses and everybody are wearing masks, um, seeing a whole bunch of patients, some with unknown COVID status or about to be diagnosed COVID, is pretty safe, uh, in contrast to what it was like early in the epidemic where healthcare workers were getting infected at about eight times the rate of the general populace. Knowing that, then I look at the idea of opening up schools and I think, well, wearing masks is really effective even in higher risk situations. So schools are not that high risk. Mm-hmm. 
But we didn't know that at the beginning, and so naturally people were uh, worried about how safe grocery stores would be with all these students, you know, flooding the town. And I think this raises another uh, piece of the pandemic, which has to do with pre-existing sense of disrespect. You know, if we know that injustice ex existed before this, you know, racial injustice or injustice as it relates to income inequities, we're seeing that exacerbated in the pandemic. One example of that has to do with teachers. Teachers mm -hmm. feel chronically disrespected and overworked and underpaid and just stressed out to the max before the pandemic. So then you stick them in a classroom with kids who might be contagious and they just mm -hmm. lost it. Mm -hmm. it. You know, and I get it. I probably would have too. It turns out that they were safe. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the epidemiological studies have not shown high risk in teachers. Uh, we didn't know that then either. And so it's just a good example of we did the best we uh, could. And I think the decisions we made were the right decisions. But, um, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. How do you think the rule, I mean, Vermont is doing an amazing job in getting vaccines to the population. I think we were number three and now, now I think we're number one in terms of states getting people vaccinated. Um, how do you think it's gone shifting from like Burlington and everything into more rural areas? Do you think we've done a good job of that? And what could other states learn from Vermont? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's tempting for states other than Vermont to uh, attribute Vermont's success to fixed traits of the state that had nothing to do with good work. You know, we already were uh, sparsely populated, and so it must be because of that. And, you know, and I imagine that has some relevance to our successes that were not as uh, thickly settled as Manhattan. Mm -hmm. um, but there are equally sparsely populated states that had really horrendous mortality rates and uh, were outclassed by Vermont's response to the pandemic. So what explains that? And for me, I think it boils down largely to social capital. Uh, in Vermont, people took care of each other. Mm -hmm. The dialogue here was, we are neighbors, we will pitch in, we will do this right. We, of course, want to listen to the science. And so that led to quite high adherence to masks. It led to strong investment in the you know other public health measures like social distancing. And fortunately, our uh, governor and commissioner of health absolutely towed the line on the science and they just they, every single time there was a, a tough decision they looked to the science to make the best possible uh, uh, decision they could they made mistakes absolutely in retrospect but but those were all justifiable mistakes born of just not knowing what the answer was at the time i think other states i hope can look at our republican governor who steadfastly believed in science like any good American would, and rallied the good neighbors of the state uh, to protect our most vulnerable because that's what citizens do regardless of political affiliation. I thought it was amazing to see how everyone tried to mask up and be safe, but also make sure businesses could stay open in a modifiable way. And there were all of these kind of incentives for people to, you know, get takeout and send it to hostel workers. And it felt like everyone was really working together here. You can definitely say, oh, well, Vermont's small and there's not many of you. But I think the general tone was very different here. And it was really, it was inspiring to be a part of. It's also just fun to like go on the New York Times COVID tracker app and always see us like near the bottom in terms of cases or near the top in terms of vaccines. Like it just makes you feel good. 
I think that will have an interesting effect on the future too. You know, I think if we can be proud of the work that we've done together, proud of pulling together, I suspect that's going to help us with recovery from the pandemic and a lot of other issues that have nothing to do with COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, like like you mentioned the economic uh, devastation that the pandemic has created. You know, the the hospitality industry is still just reeling. We are really going to take care of our restaurants and our uh, hotels and the other businesses have been just uh, really devastated by this, particularly the workers in those industries who already were um, not well paid. So if we're proud of our community and kind of got good results of pulling together and other communities that were more schismatic also had devastating mortality rates. I'm guessing that we're better poised to recover and continue to take care of each other because, hey, that worked and it was kind of actually felt good and I felt safer, as opposed to we're all angry with each other and some of us are lost our loved ones and we're still supposed to pull together. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I like the positioning. It'll be interesting to see if a lot of people start moving to Vermont by afterwards. I know people were fleeing kind of New York and Boston and stuff during this pandemic. Everyone wanted space and like a lot of people got like rental homes or like vacation homes here over the past year. Intrigued to see like if they stay or what kind of happens going forward. And also how that affects the housing market here because we don't have a lot of housing stock in excess in Vermont and having a bunch of people from out of state buy vacation home things may be good economically and may have its own issues too. This reminds me of the conversation about the Scandinavian countries and the economic impact of the pandemic, including public health restrictions. You know, there was this really interesting difference of approach in Sweden compared to the other mm-hmm. Scandinavian countries. And their approach was largely around quick generation of herd immunity and not endangering businesses with public health restrictions. And uh, whereas the other Scandinavian countries were much uh, closer to what the United States did, where they tried to achieve a balance. Mm -hmm. And uh, what the economic numbers suggest is that letting lots of people die was economically devastating. Mm -hmm. And so the the GDP has has, uh, shown an evident hit in Mm -hmm. Sweden that's special in in the pandemic compared to the other Scandinavian countries. And I suspect that relates partly to loss of productive labor, right. mm-hmm. but I think it gets to the stuff that you were talking about, about you know how safe do people feel to go out and engage with businesses, and do mm-hmm. they pull back a little bit and you know retrench their economic involvement? And so I think we're going to learn a lot about what capitalism is in the middle of this uh, infectious mm-hmm. epidemic. Mm-hmm. What do you think about younger adults and teens now, 12 to 15-year-olds, potentially getting the vaccine in the United States when, you know, we're kind of turning a corner here, but so many other countries and places are really being devastated by COVID, not just because of the virus, but also because of lack of infrastructure and everything. But what do you think about all these young people getting vaccine here where um, other countries just don't have access to it? I hear that as a uh, how do we divide the pie of the existing size properly question. And I always gravitate toward the how do we cook another pie solution. So absolutely, I think it's an interesting question. If you had a totally finite number of vaccine doses, should you give 12 to 15 year olds a vaccine that's probably not going to protect them from death very often? It is going to do it, but it's just not going to do it very often. Or should you take exactly those same doses and send it over to a low to middle income country that doesn't have nearly enough vaccines to protect its 65 year olds? If the math is fixed like that, then of course you should send it to the 65-year-olds in that low to middle income country. I 
think that it's more complicated than that and that having uh, a robust market in a wealthy country that incentivizes the drug companies to just make more vaccine doses under intense political pressure can make it so that, that there's a relationship between the United States government paying to get the 12 to 15 year olds in its country to Pfizer and Moderna and the other countries to their willingness to be able to relinquish intellectual capital or intellectual property and relinquish other capital to just do the right thing for everybody. That sounds good, but you know we can't say, well, we're just gonna grow the pie and then fail to hold people accountable to grow the pie. I think I just said two pies and bigger pies, so I'll let you decide how to that would be <laughs> I like so the, I, like, I like the mixed metaphors. <laughs> yeah, we're looking at like the COVAX initiative and their original goal was like two billion by the end of the year. And I think the last time we checked they were at like sixty-eight million, so they were like three percent of the way there. Do you think that, you know, that's going to exponentially scale up and meeting that goal is still possible? Or do you think that goal might have to be readjusted now that we're you know, almost halfway through the year? In the HIV epidemic, we encountered really similar questions. You know, when we realized in the United States and Europe that you could save more lives by starting antiretroviral therapy earlier, which cost more, mm-hmm. we for a while had these disparate standards where in sub-Saharan Africa, we still were starting antiretroviral therapy later because, hey, we just don't have that many pills, and so we're trying to figure out who needs it most. But we realized that there's uh, an unintended sort of perverse consequence of that uh, lowering of standards that we then accept that that's how it is on the ground in sub-Saharan Africa, as opposed to holding the healthcare systems of those countries to the same standards and then feeling alarmed when they can't meet them because of all the economic inequities that drive that. I like that approach more for vaccines. I, I want us to pick the goal we need to hit and then feel upset when we don't even close to hitting it and, and use that to get more political oomph to be able to get it done. Because, you know, we need to be able to get the countries to feel like it's a major PR benefit to them to give doses for free. We have to get the wealthy countries to pull together funds like they did for the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief for COVID vaccines. Uh, So so I think um, the next several months are going to be really interesting time politically because, as those numbers show, we're not even close to getting that job done. Mm -hmm. I have one question. It's not really fully formed yet, but I've been thinking about it a lot. As Americans, what do you think will hold as our cultural memory of events like this? Like going forward, how do you think this will impact us as a country and as a culture? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot about that. I think about how proud the country was of the March of Dimes effort to protect children from polio, which led to the eradication of polio from wealthy countries, um, a process that continues in war-torn areas like uh, Pakistan now. Will we look back on our COVID efforts with similar pride? What will we let slide into the mists of history, um, some of the the warts of the effort that are really apparent to us right now because we're up close? How will the violent political schism in our country influence the story we tell about um, our response to the pandemic and what will the popular lessons uh, learned be. I guess one thing that history shows us is that the United States is not one thing and uh, there are lots of pockets within it. So my guess is the story is going to be different in different places. But I do think it's going to be a harrowing time 
that informs the way we think about how society should be shaped and what good neighborliness is and what citizenship is. And I hope in retrospect we will talk about the combination of miraculous science and community cohesion. I, I hope that's the story. This is kind of changing topics a little bit, but I don't know if you saw there was a New York Times article maybe a week ago talking about like epidemiologists' personal comfort levels returning to normal. What the article maybe showed is that you know a lot of epidemiologists agree with the CDC policies, but may not personally follow all of the things that you're like allowed to do again. Kind of what's your opinion on advising patients of like what's safe to do versus what you know your personal comfort level is doing stuff and things like that? I think it's the right thing to give people risk gradient information like that. The the pattern I use in clinic is to say, look, you know, some people ride motorcycles, some don't. Some people eat sushi, some don't. Some people base jump, some don't. And, and I try to give people, you know, sort of examples of risk gradients like that. Mm -hmm. And then I tell them, I'm going to give you, you know, some advice, but I want you to pick your position on that spectrum mm -hmm. of, of acceptable risk. And so I'll tell them, you know, here's what I would recommend for everybody, and here's where there's a little bit of a gray area, and so you should feel out, do you feel comfortable going into a restaurant and eating or not? Mm -hmm. And very frequently they will ask me what I do, and I'll tell them, you know, I would never base jump. I have ridden a motorcycle, but I would not own one, and I do eat sushi, <laughs> and what I would do is this. <laughs> and they usually uh, can figure out what I mean by that. Right. Yeah, they, they can tell I'm not a, a daredevil, but I also am not avoiding 100% of the risk. Mm -hmm. One great. thing I thought was fascinating, I've noticed in my personal life over this pandemic, is just how different people's tolerance for stuff are. Because some of my family works in tech, so they've been like, working at home remotely, like safely, with like, really no huge negative impact for the past like year. And so they have like no desire to go back to socializing or going out like they're... You know, they're not economically impacted by it necessarily, and they're, they really like being home and safe. And some of my family members who work in, like, retail are, like, edging to get back to things because they're, one, they're out and about a lot more every day, and two, they're, you know, ready to open things up more so they can get all their business going again. And just really interesting to see kind of the dichotomy of two relatively similar groups with just slightly different careers now diverging so much over the past year in terms of their, like, goals and comfort levels. This makes me think about Susan Cain's book, Quiet, about sort of the underappreciated magical powers of introverts. And I think this pandemic has shown that why introversion, despite the possibility that it could make somebody withdraw from the evolutionary benefits of collaboration, could still be evolutionarily selected because maybe it keeps you safe from certain risks. And, you know, maybe we as a human population in order to survive with all these unpredictable evolutionarily pressures need some diversity and we need our extroverts who are climbing the hill with their fist raised in the cloud <laughs> like we will do this and we will conquer the new land and then we also need the people saying mm, yeah i'm gonna set this one out <laughs> i like that a lot you know i do think that one of the emerging conversations about this has to do with the nature of civic community. And I see this at two levels. One that is really important to medicine in particular. So I think more generally to the population, there is this question of what does it mean to be a good neighbor? What are my public obligations to society? 
and what sort of a government do I want? And I think that conversation, you know, is happening every day, of course, in the political sphere. And I think in the United States, there's a, a longstanding, particularly strong conversation about how small government should be. This past 15 months has been a very, very powerful message about what too small government can do. It doesn't answer the question of exactly how big government should be because, of course, it depends on the question you're asking. You know, government should be a different size when you're talking about schools than right. it should be about regulating hairdressers. You know what I mean? Um, but I do think this has given us a tangible, powerful example of what the dangers are of being overly simplistic about the size of government. So I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation that goes forward. The other piece of civic dialogue that I think is going to be shaped by the pandemic has to do with anybody's and doctors' obligations to be part of civic dialogue. The thing that I think we're having called into question is the famed political neutrality of physicians. You know, I think the default assumption of most physicians is I don't want to alienate any, anybody in my clinic population. I don't want my credibility as a counselor impugned by the appearance of some political bias, and so I'm going to withdraw when the political temperature gets too high. I still think there are some good truths in there about avoiding excess bias, but I think we've seen this past year that it was critically important for thoughtful, scientifically-based commentators to get their voices out there to compete with the misinformation and ill-informed and I would say perversely incentivized members of our society who lied to us. And I, I think that should influence the way physicians see public advocacy as a part of their role. I think we have an obligation to save lives by using the prestige of our position to protect them with facts. The, the temptation there is that we're going to take our historically not small egos and bring them into the political sphere and fall prey to the temptation of the limelight and overdo it and get into the political fray in a way that does undermine our credibility. Um, and so I think we'll have to be very careful with that. But I think the danger of not engaging is that we fail to protect the people who need us the most. And so um, I think it's going to be interesting to see in particular how your generation of physicians strikes that balance. That's a great thought. I was just thinking it's been such an interesting time to be in medical school right now for that reason exactly. Family members, we're, we're not even real doctors at this point, but people are still asking for our opinions and we're kind of learning every day that you do have to kind of speak up and I think it's different from how physicians have been trained in the past and just how it would be interesting to see how kids of a couple of generations, you know, before us grew up mm -hmm. with this memory of the pandemic. It'll be interesting to see how our generation of doctors uses this knowledge to go forward. Yeah, I'm also just intrigued to see, like, how it impacts, like, the medical field. Because I feel like there's a lot of pride around, like, working in healthcare right now. and But there's also, like, a lot of burnout, especially in the beginning when there wasn't enough PPE and there were all these fears of people were getting infected at really high rates. It's this kind of a dichotomy where people are so excited to work in healthcare and also realizing you actually are putting your health at risk sometimes when you're taking care of sick people. And so it's just kind of interesting to see what ends up happening to like the desirability of the field, you know, after this pandemic or during the next pandemic. 
I can tell you an interesting story about that. At some point in the last year, I was in clinic and uh, seeing patients, and I was about to run over to the wards to see patients in the hospital, including people with COVID. And I got a distressed call from my wife, who was standing on a street corner in, in uh, Shelburne, Vermont, tearing signs down from the intersection that many people who live in the area drive by, calling me a liar. I think it said Tim, Dr. Tim Leahy is a paid liar. This happened uh, within a week of one of my other colleagues having a bullet shot through her window. And then about a week after that, federal agents came in and found, partly based on some social media posts, that there was an unhinged individual threatening to harm many people involved in the public health effort in Vermont. That happened at the same time that there were signs every day saying that, you know, heroes work here, uh, that every day I got calls from family members or reporters or students or other clinicians asking for advice. And after I told a couple of my partners about those signs, the next day I came in and one of them had put up a sign that looked exactly the same, you know, had the same font. And it said, Dr. Tim Leahy is a game flea and, and employed humanitarian. <laughs> and so I thought this was the answer to your question in, in a little microcosm. You know, mm -hmm. this has been a phenomenally stressful year. I've, I've never been attacked so many times. I've never uh, lost so many nights sleep worrying about the health of the community. And I've also never had so many compliments. I've never had so much support from my colleagues and I've never felt so fulfilled in my work. And so it's good and it's bad. And my guess is that the experience is partly what we make of it. You know, the, how can I turn myself to the sign that somebody I respect wrote and not this weird fringe individual? And also, how well do we circle the wagons as communities and take care of each other? And I think some institutions are taking care of uh, their people and uh, some are not. And I suspect that'll make a big difference, too. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for everything yeah, that you do. You. And I like that the overall kind of theme to arise from this conversation is going forth and caring for each other as a community and as a country. Amen. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah, fun. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Sam Schutz. And I'm Anish Single. And thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed our discussion, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates. You know, being like LeBron James or something like that with all the, little, all the phones. <laughs> That's like, pretty much just pretty much what you are. I'm a LeBron James. You are the LeBron James. LeBron James. <laughs> He was busy this weekend, so <laughs> all she was right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure LeBron has some interesting takes on vaccine rollout and hesitancy in this country. So. You know he would not hesitate to say it. <laughs> Whatever it is he's thinking. <laughs>